In late September 2019, Congressman Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, gathered with his staff to read a remarkable document just released by the Trump White House. It was the transcript of the phone call Trump had had that July with Ukrainian President Zelensky, the one where, after Zelensky asked the president about providing his country with javelin anti-tank missiles to fight Russian aggression, Trump told him, I would like you to do us a favor, though, and then proceeded to press the Ukrainian leader to launch an investigation of Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Oh my God, one staffer proclaimed at the seemingly brazen request for a quid pro quo. Jesus Christ, blurted another. As for Schiff, he kept muttering to himself, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Schiff had finally gotten what he believed was the ultimate smoking gun, and it emboldened him to lead the charge for Trump's first impeachment, a scene he recounts in his new book, Midnight in Washington. It's a detailed behind the scenes, occasionally eye-popping account of his years-long campaign to expose and suitably punish what he viewed as the former president's raw corruption. But how effective have Schiff's efforts to purge Donald Trump from American political life been? And what lessons has he learned that will guide him and his fellow members of the January 6th committee as they seek to get to the bottom of Trump's role in one of the darkest days of American democracy? We'll discuss that and much more with Schiff on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we have been eager to have Schiff on the uh, pod uh, once again. He's been on a few times before because of his new book. And, um, you know, he has been the, the congressional face of anti-Trump resistance from the beginning. But the timing is particularly good. We're right on the eve of the House January 6th committee about to try to enforce a subpoena against Steve Bannon, threatening him with criminal prosecution, referring it to the Justice Department. It's unclear to me how effective this is going to be. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's at least the prescription for a uh, lengthy court battle, but it'll be interesting to see how Schiff games this out. Yeah, it's like the it's the story of, you know, Adam Schiff in a way and, and what he writes about in his book or becomes kind of screamingly clear in his book. Schiff is, you know, sort of from central casting in terms of his background for this job of uh, going after a corrupt president. You know, Stanford graduate, Harvard Law graduate, uh, former federal prosecutor, very shrewd, very smart lawyer. And yet, you know, two impeachments, but at the end of the day, does it change anything at all? Right. Um, and, um, and he's made a lot of enemies uh, on the other side of the aisle as well. And he's made a lot of enemies. He's had to deal with death threats and, you know, Facebook postings from people saying your family should go back to Auschwitz. I mean, you know, this is, this is the, the age uh, that we're in, and someone with all of those credentials— you know, and a, a president who was as corrupt as, as Trump was and, and the people around him. And yet at the end of the day, here we are seeing if we can enforce 
a subpoena to get Steve Bannon just to testify in front of a congressional committee. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's come to a head at this moment now before the January 6th committee. And you could regard this to a certain degree as a as a pivotal moment in whether or not Congress is going to do anything to reassert its authority and its power to conduct investigations. If anything, the last 10 or 15 years has showed us that it's that Congress has done two things. It has, one, dissipated its own power and authority by failing to fund itself properly to systematically conduct good investigations. And second of all, it's done really very little to kind of serve and act as a co-equal branch of government. It's It really just has not covered itself in glory over the last 15 years. Spoken but, like a former congressional <laughs> staffer there <laughs> that you are, yeah. Victoria. But this is, a, this is a pivotal moment because the question is, this is the moment at which with Congress being physically attacked, whether or not Congress has the institutional will to begin to claw back its competence and power. And it's happening, or it's beginning to happen tonight. I, I agree with you that this is a pivotal moment uh, for Congress and a test for Congress in terms of its um, oversight powers. But it's also a test for the executive branch and for uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, because this is about to be kicked over to the Justice Department. And, you know, it, it looks like the White House will waive executive privilege. And Merrick Garland is, is going to have to make the, the decision as to whether to investigate and prosecute Steve Bannon. And, you know, it's a pretty open and shut case uh, legally, right? I mean, you know, he's defying sure a subpoena. It's open okay. and so, look, shut. I don't, I don't have any inside information on this, but one thing I feel reasonably certain about is that there is no way the House would seek a criminal referral from the Department of Justice only to get slapped in the face by them. Yeah. They must know that they've got an open door for making this referral because the most embarrassing outcome for them would be to actually make this criminal referral to Merrick Garland and then to have him say, nah, but that would be a disaster. And I just don't think that Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff would walk into that disaster. So what are those conversations like where people on the January 6th committee are having conversations with people at the Justice Department? What are you going to do if we send this over to you? Or the White House gets involved, someone from the White House? I mean, th they can't, that seems the, a little The White dicey. House can't or shouldn't get involved. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, you know, like a, a breach of kind of agreements between the, the White House and the Department of Justice. Well, there was an interesting back and forth last yeah. Friday where, you know, Biden said he fully expected the Justice Department would pursue a prosecution. And then Garland's chief spokesman, you know, felt compelled to put out a statement saying, we will make our own independent judgment after we receive whatever information we're going to receive from the House, uh, making it clear that, no, they weren't taking their direction from Biden on this one. And nor should they be taking their direction from Congress, which makes all of this kind of and there's an interesting sort of subtle signals being sent, but little but winking and nodding. Little, little winking and nodding. I don't know, but you know, it is definitely kind of fascinating and interesting, as predicted here on the pod. It all comes down to Merrick Garland. 
Yeah. Well, and but ultimately the Supreme Court, because it'll get litigated. You know, Bannon, Trump, they're all Meadows. They're all going to invoke executive privilege. We're in untested, you know, territory yeah. as to what the extent and scope of executive privilege is. Mm-hmm. Bannon would seem to have the clearly the weakest argument. He wasn't even a staffer at the time, but it's not open and shut. I mean, there have been arguments that, you know, presidents need confidants and they need to be able to consult with them. I was reminded reading a a piece by John Ward and and, uh, Caitlin Dixon in Yahoo News earlier today that there is some precedent for people who are outside of the administration being able to claim executive privilege or presidents claiming executive privilege on their behalf. If you go back to 2007, uh, you all will remember the uh, investigation into the firings of the U.S. attorneys uh, during the Bush administration. Oh, yeah. Uh, Covered it for Newsweek. That's Mm -hmm. right. Well, the guidance from the Office of of, uh, Legal Counsel, I believe, back then was that I can't remember. I think they were seeking both testimony and documents from people who had already left the administration. And it was asserted by uh, Paul Clement, the deputy attorney general at the time, that it was covered by executive privilege. So there's some precedent, at least internally in the executive branch, and I think an OLC opinion to that effect. I'm sure it's all going to be very finely sifted over by uh, many courts, as Mike is is predicting quite accurately. The the one difference being that because they're seeking criminal contempt, it will go a lot faster than if it were any kind of civil case. But it still has to, you know, go through all the hoops, district court. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, but fast. But Steve Bannon could be sitting in the D.C. jail while that's happening, right? Although that seems unlikely. Seems unlikely. But, you know, uh, the question is, will Steve Bannon be sitting in jail this time next year? Okay. Well, before we get to Schiff, when we're going to talk to him about his um, uh, pursuit of Donald Trump, there's uh, like one more beat mentioning here. Of course, uh, the big news this week is uh, the death of Colin Powell uh, from COVID complicated by his cancer and Parkinson's disease at the age of 84. And of course, Powell, you know, just strikes me as a... um, as somebody from another era in American politics, an era when American democracy was not uh, under attack, when people could be esteemed on a bipartisan basis because of their service to um, their country. He obviously was not perfect, and we all remember the Iraq War speech. But that said, here is what the former president, Donald Trump, just put out about the death of the former Secretary of State, the former Chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. If I can draw back the curtain on the crafting of this pod for a moment, there was some debate about whether or not we should even dignify Trump's comments with, uh, with airing them. But we decided to go ahead because there's only one response, right, Mike? What a dick. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. on that note, um, let's get to um, the congressman who has been pursuing him for many years, Congressman Adam Schiff. 
We are now joined by Congressman Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and the author of the new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Great to be with you. So uh, lots to talk about from your book, but we do have to start out with the January 6th committee. And um, we are taping this Tuesday morning. You are slated to vote tonight for to hold Steve Bannon in contempt. And then things become very murky about what happens from there and how you enforce it. Do you make referrals to the Justice Department? Do you uh, use inherent contempt powers? And how do you avoid the Don McGahn problem of getting bottled up in the courts and extending and making it more difficult to get actual information. Yeah, well, the, the process is we'll take up the contempt uh, this evening of Steve Bannon in the committee. We'll vote that out. Uh, it'll go to the House floor and we will take it up soon in the House. And once the House passes the uh, finding that Steve Bannon is in criminal contempt, the speaker will refer to the Justice Department, where the statute says the Justice Department has a duty to present it to the grand jury. Now, that duty is not always fulfilled, but uh, there are some very positive signs uh, that it will be fulfilled. Uh, it really needs to be. The president uh, and the White House have not asserted executive privilege over the documents we're requesting. They have made available to us uh, top uh, former Justice Department officials and to other committees. Uh, without uh, making any claim of work product or any other privilege. Uh, and of course, uh, you have the president's statement the other day that people that ignore subpoenas should be held accountable and should be prosecuted. So uh, I think the indications are, are strong that the Justice Department will take this seriously, uh, as they should. There's no even colorable claim of privilege uh, in Bannon's case. He was long gone from the administration by the time of the events that we're talking about. Uh, and what's more, he can't just say, I'm going to refuse to appear, even if there were some valid claim of, or assertion of privilege, uh, he would need to appear and specify just what question or what document it would apply to. So it's a pretty clear case of contempt. But, um, but now, that said, but that said, you know, he has said he's been directed by the former president not to cooperate because of executive privilege. At some point, he goes to the courts to enjoin the subpoena or challenge any criminal charges. And this gets litigated. It will have to be litigated, go before district court judge, court of appeals. Ultimately, the Supreme Court will weigh in. Meanwhile, the president himself, the former president himself, has uh, you know gone to court on executive privilege to stop cooperating with the committee. I mean, how do you get around the inevitability of a lengthy court battle here? Well, first of all, what, what distinguishes this from the situation involving the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, who, as you point out, took two years to get his deposition. In that case, we were using civil litigation to go through the courts. Uh, and they did take us up and back to the Supreme Court. This is a very different process. The Department of Justice can arrest Steve Bannon and uh, file charges against him and prosecute him. Uh, and yes, even criminal cases can take time. But there's nothing like the prospect of going to jail to, to gain, gain one's attention. Uh, and as important as that, that will be, and, and that process will be much swifter than if we had to go the civil route, uh, it will also send an important message to others who may consider similarly obstructing the Congress that they will be prosecuted. 
Uh, and that's a powerful deterrent uh, against lawlessness. Uh, so yes, they can try to draw it out, but people drawing it out as a criminal defendant. Uh, and so uh, those penalties are real, and I think they're much more capable of being applied with speed. Uh, we're not excluding other potential remedies like inherent contempt or even if we had to civil litigation, but the most uh, expeditious remedy, the most severe remedy is prosecution because he could be held in jail for up to a year uh, and he can be fined uh, as well. And, you know, I think that will get his attention and, and the attention of others. Just one more beat on this. Even if you do get Bannon before the committee, what do you think you're going to get from him? Um, that would be useful and something you could rely on. And more broadly, what's your theory of the case here at this point on the January 6th committee? We've known about Trump's incitement during the speech he gave that day, and that was fully aired during the second impeachment trial. But the Justice Department has arrested, what, over 600 people so far. They've had access to their social media accounts, their cell phones, their text messages. And we've yet to see evidence that Trump or his people directed them in the violence that took place on January 6th. So tell us what your theory is here in pursuing this and what you think you can ultimately prove. Well, the reason we're interested in Bannon is uh, that on January 5th, and that among other reasons, on January 5th, uh, Bannon was predicting that all hell was going to break loose uh, at the rally the next day. And given his uh, close uh, communication and reportedly frequent communication with the former president in the days leading up to January 6th, uh, he could tell us a lot about what is remains, I think, the biggest black box, and that is... What did the president know in advance about that rally? What did he know about the participation of uh, violent white nationalist groups? Uh, what was his uh, plan and expectation if Mike Pence refused his will as he had been refusing in the days leading up to January 6th? That you he think refused? he's going to tell you the truth? Um, I don't know what he's going to tell us. Uh, but uh, but if, he, if he comes and lies to the committee uh, and we can later prove or the Justice Department can, he would face even more serious charges. Uh, and this time, unlike the last time he was indicted for stealing money from Trump supporters, this time there's no Donald Trump in the White House to give him a pardon. Uh, so this time there's real jeopardy for him if he violates the law. But look, all we can do is use the tools that we have to get answers from American people uh, and present those answers. Uh, I don't want to prejudge what we will learn, but I am determined, I think all of us on the select committee are, that we're going to find out the truth uh, with every every uh, effort we can and make it as expeditious as we can uh, and make a set of recommendations to the public about how to protect the country going forward. So I want to loop back real quickly to tonight's vote and the uh, decision to seek a referral from the Department of Justice for criminal contempt. One of the more curious things that uh, is happening in this situation is essentially outsourcing Congress's efforts to enforce its power to the executive branch. We've mentioned briefly inherent contempt, which is essentially the ability of Congress itself to enforce the contempt power and to enforce its power. What will it take or what do you think would be the right situation in which Congress would actually reassert its contempt power, which it hasn't done probably since the 1930s? Well, I think that the, the best path forward is the criminal justice path. Um, we don't have a jail uh, in the Congress anymore like we did 100 years ago. Uh, so if we did have the House Sergeant Arms go out and arrest Steve Bannon, 
for failure to appear. There would be nowhere to put him. Why don't you put funding for a jail in the infrastructure bill? <laughs> uh, well, sorry, uh, go ahead. <laughs> that that uh, who knows that might get bipartisan support. He's a he's a very mixed figure even in the GOP. It seems pretty clear Congress could find a a, a not particularly glamorous spot to stow Steve Bannon if if it decided to exercise its inherent contempt. That's you know the the answer that you gave is one that's frequently given. We don't have a jail, but that seems to be sort of avoiding the point, which is you could find somewhere to put him if you if you needed to. So well, and, and, and I, I don't mean to uh, to belittle the remedy, uh, which is a real remedy, and it's one may we may apply. Uh, and of course, uh, incarceration isn't the only option that we have. We could find Steve Bannon every day that he non that he's non-compliant. But even those remedies aren't without their limitations. Uh, if we found a place, for example, as you say, uh, to stow Steve Bannon, uh, he would file a habeas corpus petition, and we would have to litigate that. Uh, if we sought to garnish his wages, we'd have to go to court uh, to seek the mechanism for a garnishment, uh, since he's not on the congressional payroll. Uh, so none of these remedies uh, are, are without their limitations. Uh, so we have chosen the remedy that, that, frankly, could bring about the swiftest response and result, and that's criminal prosecution. But we do not foreclose the possibility of using other remedies as well. But, Congressman, I, I'm going to get to the book in a second. Um, but I think Victoria's larger point, which I think the, the Bannon example raises, is, you know, look, Bannon, you know, you go after him with criminal contempt, uh, which obviously is a kind of leverage that you're not always going to be able to use for congressional oversight, right? I mean, mostly it would be done in the context of, of civil contempt, uh, which would you'd have to litigate, which takes time, to Mike's point. And I think the larger question that Victoria is raising is, is a kind of impotence on the part of, of Congress in this era that we're living in of, of you know, just people thumbing their noses at, at Congress, whether it's the administration or individuals. What do you do about that? Well, you know, that, that's a real that's a real problem. That's why uh, we impeached the former president for obstructing Congress. Uh, it would have done us little good to try to uh, hold uh, members of, uh, or witnesses uh, in contempt when we'd held, held Bill Barr in contempt. Uh, he wasn't about to prosecute people for covering up for Donald Trump uh, when he was trying to reduce their sentences like he did with Roger Stone or trying to make their cases go away completely as he did with Michael Flynn. And four years of that kind of lawlessness, yes, has, has bred this kind of contempt of Congress, uh, this expectation that you can thumb your nose at, at compulsion and, and get away with it. Uh, Steve Bannon showed up uh, during the Russia investigation when he was chaired by the Republicans with only 25 questions he would deign to answer that had been written out for him by the White House, by the subject of our investigation. And there was no consequence for that. And that's why he feels free to thumb his nose now. But now we have a different Justice Department, one that believes in the rule of law and that no one is above that rule of law. Uh, and this is why I, I think that the single most important step to reasserting Congress's oversight function and its oversight powers is that people who do not abide by the law and refuse go to jail. And with all the limitations that you mentioned, which are real, this is the single best way to effectuate oversight once again. And, and to, to my point of view, it is an early test case of whether our democracy is recovering. It is conceitedly ironic, however, that the, the best way for Congress to reassert its oversight power is to ask the executive branch to do it for them. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's ironic. Uh, if someone comes and lies to Congress, for example, commits perjury like Roger Stone or others, 
we refer them to the Justice Department for prosecution because we're not a prosecutorial office. Uh, and that's part of the separation of powers. Uh, what, what is unnatural uh, that I would agree with you is that for four years, uh, and I think in contravention of what the founders expected when they designed our system of checks and balances, one party, the Republican Party, would not advance its own institutional interest, was willing to undermine its own oversight power in slavish devotion to the former president. Uh, Republicans understood, because among other things, we told them over and over again uh, during the course of the impeachment that if they allowed this president to get away with simply ignoring subpoenas, that it would undermine their own authority when a Democrat became president. But look, there are lots of other powers than inherent contempt that we could use, uh, that we should have used in the prior administration, like withholding funding from the executive until they complied, not uh, advancing any administration priorities until they, they adhered to the law. But it kind of falls apart when one party is unwilling to check the ambition of the executive branch because it's a president of their party. So this conversation is a perfect segue uh, to talking about Midnight in Washington, your book, because at, at its essence, it is, a, it is a book about the crisis in our democracy over the last four years. So I guess the question for you is, how big a crisis was it? How close did we come to losing our democracy? And finally, how much of a threat still exists? Well, we came, we came remarkably, astonishingly close to losing our democracy, to the point where the President of the United States was badgering local elected officials and state elected officials to overturn the election. And the Justice Department was being bent to his will. The top Justice Department officials were trying to use the power of that office to encourage one of the states and then other states after that to falsely certify alternate slates of electors. That might have succeeded. What if Brad Raffensperger in Georgia had said yes to finding 11,780 votes that didn't exist? Or what if Kevin McCarthy had become speaker, um, had, had, uh, had the power to literally decertify the election, which he would have done uh, if they had gained just a handful more seats in that, in that presidential election? So we came very close to losing our democracy. And, and one of the things that, that I write about in the book is uh, the, the, the terrible realization, which now seems so, so self-evident, but the, the terrible realization early on in the Trump years that the paramount threat to our democracy didn't come from Russia or China or any hostile power. The threat to our democracy now came from within. Uh, and, and even now, after this insurrection, we are in a more fragile place because the Republicans are running with this big lie around the country and stripping independent elections officials of their duties. We may have another violent attack on the Capitol. Uh, that will fail, just as the first one did. But where they may succeed is in these efforts to get these uh, acolytes of Donald Trump uh, installed into what should be nonpartisan technical elections jobs around the country so that uh, they will find someone next time who will invent uh, 11,708 votes that don't exist. So we're, we're at a very, very fragile place. So when, when, when people go through the, the kind of litany of efforts that, that Trump engaged in and the, the various assaults that were made on our democracy at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, they, they usually follow it up with a, a huge uh, sigh of relief and they say, but the guardrails held. 
thank goodness. I gather that the fact that the guardrails held doesn't really comfort you that much. Can you tell us a little bit more why? Uh, you know, it's true um, that the Trump years were a stress test that we, we passed, but barely. Um, the reason that, that I am still as concerned and doing my best uh, in this book to sound the alarm uh, is that we're not at all out of the woods. Uh, and the terrible tragedy is uh, that you're right, I think after that bloody insurrection, there was a moment in which the country might have turned the corner. Uh, you could see uh, the flickerings of conscience in Kevin McCarthy, which in his case lasted only about 30 seconds. But in the case of Mitch McConnell, you could see him wrestling with whether he should try to throw Donald Trump overboard. Uh, you could see how much he recognized uh, what a disaster Donald Trump had been for the country and his own party and the institution that he had long served in. But it was only two weeks even for McConnell between acknowledging uh, after the impeachment and insurrection, the second impeachment, that Trump was morally and practically responsible for that attack and was broadcasting the biggest lies to the biggest microphone uh, because he couldn't accept losing an election. It was only two weeks thereafter that he was asked, well, if he's the nominee again, would you support him? And his answer was absolutely. And in that two-week period, we lost the chance to turn the corner as a country. And in fact, the Republicans have doubled down on the same lie that, that resulted in the insurrection. Uh, and so hard to see how we can feel very good about the guardrails when what brought us to, to the lowest point in our democracy since since the Civil War is still the, the central message of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. How do you explain this? You know, one of the fascinating nuggets in your book is you had friendly relations with many of these Republicans who now, I, I gather, you're not even on speaking terms with. I mean, you know, you talk about how you and Devin Nunes used to cooperate on the committee. You were friendly. You texted during Raiders games. Um, and, you know, he has turned into something very different than what you thought about him before. How do you explain this? I mean, the, you you viewed Nunes and many of your other fellow Republicans as reasonable people you can work with, and now you clearly don't. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and a big part of the reason I want to write the book is, you know, there's a lot that's been written about what happened in the Trump White House but very little that's been written about what happened in Congress over these years and how so many people, um, uh, you know, uh, I think of, of good intention allowed themselves to be completely coerced and, and uh, corrupted into supporting Donald Trump. Uh, Devin Nunes, before Donald Trump's presidency, was not an ideologue. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite things that he once said during the Tea Party movement is he described the Tea Party as lemmings with suicide vests. Um, he was more of a John Boehner kind of country club Republican, very pragmatic. Uh, and we'd worked together well for years. But he got to know the president during the campaign. He, he got a position on the Donald Trump's transition team. I think it was a very heady thing. He was helping to pick cabinet members for Donald Trump. Uh, and when it became clear that the Russians had interfered in our election and done so to try to help Donald Trump win, um, and the, the investigation fell to our committee to conduct. He was the chairman at the time. Uh, and in our very first hearing, um, as you recall, uh, with James Comey, he dropped this bombshell that there was not just a Clinton email investigation, but there had been a, an investigation the FBI had kept quiet of the Trump campaign. 
Uh, and you would have thought that, you know, people would have, have congratulated the FBI on keeping such a huge investigation secret, uh, huge in terms of its political consequences. Um, but of course, it revealed this terrible double standard where the Clinton investigation had been very public and the Trump investigation very private. But nonetheless, Republicans thought the revelation of that was an utter disaster. Uh, and it was the very next uh, night that, that Nunes went on the so-called midnight run. And when that whole thing blew up, I think it forged a, a very strong bond between Nunes and Trump um, in, in a way that uh, he hadn't been part of that whole down the rabbit hole, alternate reality Trump world before. And look, I, I, uh, it, it caused me to have to, to call on him to step down from the investigation, uh, which he did. Uh, that was a relationship altering event. But even so, you know, I, I will say, uh, I think to the credit of our committee, that notwithstanding those really deep divisions and animosities, every year we've gotten our intelligence authorization bill done, including this one. Uh, so we have been able to compartmentalize the work of the committee. But you're right. Uh, it, uh, I lost friendships. I lost close working partnerships, you know, like the rest of America um, that, that now has family members who are alienated from the family. And neighbors that they, they won't speak to. And I particularly wanted to describe, you know, the role of the enablers in Congress, because Donald Trump could not have dismantled those guardrails and brought our democracy so close to ruin if he didn't have the willing participation of so many people in Congress. As long as you brought up the Russia investigation, a, a subject you and I both have a longstanding interest in, I have a, a, a number of questions off the book on that. And one is something that you cite in the book based on recent Treasury Department sanction, and that's Konstantin Kalimnik, who was the long-standing employee of Paul Manafort in Ukraine, um, ran his Kiev office. We know from the Mueller report that uh, Manafort had provided Kalimnik with polling data from the Trump campaign. But we learned that, um, and you write this uh, based on what the Treasury Department said, that Kalimnik then provided this sensitive internal campaign polling data, which Kalimnik in turn provided to Russian intelligence services. Now, that was not in the Mueller report. It wasn't even in the Senate Intelligence Committee report. They said they couldn't determine, and Mueller said they couldn't determine what uh, Kalimnik did with this polling data. This seems so central to the issue that you were investigating in the Russia matter. So I just want to ask you, was this new information that was developed after Mueller, after Senate Intelligence, or was it information that was concealed from Mueller and the committees before the Biden administration asserted this? Yeah, it's a very good question, Michael. And, and honestly, I do not know the answer, uh, whether this information was kept from Mueller, um, whether... Uh, How solid is it? I mean, do we know, um, you know, is this high confidence, low confidence? Do we know what the Russian intelligence services did with it after they got it? Did they provide it to the Internet Research Agency for those targeting of Facebook ads? I mean, there are so many unanswered questions here. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of unanswered questions, uh, and I don't know that we're ever going to have the complete uh, answers to them. But, uh, but for the, uh, what I'm really trying to communicate in the book is just what is so uh, patently in front of us. Um, which is there are always going to be additional unanswered questions. And part of it is because Paul Manafort 
uh, used encrypted apps and others did, and they, uh, some of them destroyed uh, the information they did have. But here you have someone who is running a presidential campaign, very experienced in presidential campaigns, uh, giving internal polling data to essentially to Russian intelligence, giving it to an agent of Russian intelligence in Konstantin Kalimnik. Um, what do you think they wanted that information for? Um, they were running a campaign to elect Donald Trump. It would be very useful information. Uh, and if we were presenting this case to a jury, uh, the argument that we would make, which is the argument heard in every court around the country, is you don't leave your common sense at the door. Um, they had a reason that they wanted that data. Manafort had a reason to give Russian intelligence that data. Um, and, and of course, this isn't the only illustration of, of the effort of the, the Trump campaign and the Russians to work together uh, to help cheat in this election. Um, there were many entreaties made by the Trump campaign for Russian help. I have a few more yeah. Russia questions on this. And since you brought up that original hearing with Comey, I want to take you back to that day because you know, one name that is barely mentioned in your book is Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence officer who provided the you know now notorious dossier uh, that made a number of allegations that the New York Times recently said re was really just a collection of rumors. But in your opening statement that day, you repeatedly cited Steele and the allegations in the dossier. You talked about the claim that Carter Page had a secret meeting with Igor Sechin and was offered brokerage fees on a deal involving a 19% share of Rosneft, the giant Russia conglomerate. Uh, you talked about Manafort deputizing Page during the campaign, the um, change in the platform suggesting this was part of you know the Russian collusion uh, by the Trump campaign. Now, in almost every instance, the claims that you cited and others in the dossier never panned out, were never corroborated, and in some cases, like, you know, Michael Cohen in Prague, we, we pretty much know uh, was false. Do you regret relying on the uh, Steele dossier when you open that investigation as the ranking minority member? And what do you say, you call out the Republicans, Devin Nunes and others, for making a lot of false allegations that never panned out. What do you say to Republicans who would say, hey, Schiff, coming after us, when you did the same thing? Uh, well, first of all, as you as you'll recall, if you uh, go through that speech again, you'll see that uh, I described these things as allegations that are worthy Correct. of. And you said we don't know whether this is going to be true or not, but you exactly. spread them exactly. Spread and, them. and a great and a great many things you haven't mentioned, Michael. Yeah. did prove to be correct. Absolutely. Uh, Russians were involved in a social media campaign. Uh, they were involved in the hacking and dumping of documents. Uh, they were interacting with Paul Manafort. In fact, uh, many of the things that we would learn would be far worse than what I described uh, as the allegations. Uh, at that time, for example, we didn't know, and if, and if I had posited at that hearing, if I had said that I believe that we're going to find written evidence that the Russians offered dirt to, to the Trump campaign, as, as what they would describe in writing uh, was the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign, uh, and that the Trump campaign would respond in writing uh, the president's own son, that if it's what you say it is, we would love it. That would have been accurate. Uh, of course, we had no idea that's what we would find. Uh, but we did, you know, I did describe, for example, the allegation about Roger Stone uh, predicting that John Podesta's emails would be hacked. 
Uh, and we would learn uh, that, in fact, Roger Stone was in touch with WikiLeaks, that Don Jr., the president's own son, was also in touch with this cutout that was publishing the hacked documents. I don't dismiss any of that, although very little, if any of that, was actually in the Steele dossier. The question was, do you regret relying on the Steele dossier? And did you know at the time that it was an opposition research document that was commissioned by the Clinton campaign? I don't regret uh, mentioning the allegations that were public at the time, uh, some of which proved to be accurate. Even worse things proved to be accurate than, than was alleged at the time. Uh, and even, you know, the broad conclusions of the Steele dossier that there was an effort to collude between Trump and Russia, which proved to be correct. Uh, so, no, do I regret uh, saying that these are things that should be investigated? No, that's what we knew about in the very early weeks of the investigation. Uh, in terms of what we knew about the origin of Christopher Steele's work, that, uh, you know, these were uh, essentially raw intelligence reports from his sources uh, and who originally paid for it. I don't recall exactly when we learned, for example, that the, the Free Beacon, this conservative paper, uh, had first hired Fusion GPS, uh, and later that when, when uh, the primary resulted in Trump's nomination, that Fusion GPS went to work for uh, the Clinton campaign. I don't recall when we learned these facts. But again, uh, I think it was perfectly appropriate to say, these are the allegations that we're going to investigate. Uh, one more uh, on, not on Steele, but on Bill Barr, who you go after quite a bit in the book. You talk about his monstrous deception. That's your words of the um, of the Mueller report. And you say uh, Mueller didn't decide whether the obstruction evidence against Trump amounted to a crime. He said he couldn't do that. Barr said it didn't rise to the level. And you go after him. You say, in, re in reality, the report would provide a factual basis to charge the president with multiple crimes of obstruction and that Trump and his close advisors almost certainly broke federal law in order to impede the investigation. We're now nine months into the Biden administration. There's not any indication that Merrick Garland, his attorney general, is even interested at all in prosecuting what you said were clear violations of federal law. How do you explain that? And are you disappointed that the Garland Justice Department has not been more aggressive on this and other fronts? In terms of how I explain it, uh, look, I think there's a real desire uh, on the part of the attorney general, uh, for the most part, not to look backward. Um, do I disagree with that? Um, I do disagree with that. Uh, and I disagree with it most vehemently uh, when it comes to what I consider uh, even more serious offenses. Uh, for example, a taped conversation of Donald J. Trump on the phone with Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State from Georgia, uh, trying to coerce him into fraudulently finding 11,780 votes. Because I think if you or I did that, we'd be under indictment by now. Uh, in my view, you don't ignore the crimes that have been committed by a president of the United States. They need to be investigated. You may reach the judgment once you've investigated something uh, that uh, the, the public interest in not prosecuting a former president outweighs uh, the, the interests of justice. But I don't think you could ignore the crimes. Um, I, I, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is exactly what the Justice Department is doing. And they're doing a very good job of holding grand jury hearings into what happened in Georgia. And, and it's just not becoming public. But I, I suspect that they're they're counting on the Fulton County DA to do justice. And I, 
And I don't think that that uh, is, is how we ought to view the magnitude of that effort to overturn the election. Um, there's also an indictment in the Southern District of New York uh, in which individual number one uh, directed and coordinated a campaign fraud scheme uh, in which the Justice Department argued that the guy who was coordinated and directed, Michael Cohen, needed to go to jail. So what's the argument that the guy that did the coordinating and did the directing gets a pass? Uh, so, um, I, I, you know, in my view, in light of Nixon being pardoned, uh, the Justice Department taking a position you can't prosecute a sitting president, which I also disagree with, um, to say now that as a practical matter, you can't prosecute a former president would make the president above the law. And that's a dangerous proposition in the abstract. Uh, given that Trump is, I think, already running for president again, it's an even more dangerous prospect for the future. Yesterday, uh, the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and other groups wrote a letter to Attorney General Garland asking him to drop the prosecution of Julian Assange, citing our reporting at Yahoo News about the CIA's efforts in 2017 to target Assange, including driven by then Director Pompeo, kidnapping him, abducting him in a snatch operation and other steps. Were you briefed on any of this at the time? Have you inquired since our story came out about what the CIA was doing in that regard? And does any of it trouble you? Uh, I was not briefed uh, on, uh, on, on what um, uh, your reporting and others have described uh, at the time. Uh, we are seeking information about it now. Uh, I don't have anything that I can report to you at this point. Um, but uh, those allegations uh, that I read uh, that were reported uh, were the first time that I'd heard that. So you are seeking, have you written a letter to the CIA and asked them we, for documents? We have, we have sought uh, information from the agencies about those allegations and whether they're correct, any part of them are correct, or whether they're incorrect. Um, you know, I, I can't comment on what we've okay. heard back yet. Okay. All right. We got to let the congressman go. Esikoff. All right. Thank you. We've you been, got a lot. He's indulged us for, the, for more time than we uh, <laughs> he promised to. So it was a it was a wonderful book to read. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I, you know, I do want to say, if I could, just to, to end on the book, um, notwithstanding its title. In fact, because I chose the title "Midnight in Washington," because while it's the darkest hour of every day, uh, it's also a hopeful time. Uh, because what comes after um, has the prospect of light. Uh, we are going to get through this. I use the book to, to profile a lot of the heroic people, not just those that capitulated uh, to the presence of morality, but the heroic people like Marie Ivanovich and Alexander Binman, uh, Fiona Hill and Bill Taylor and others, even Dan Coates, uh, who stood up to the president uh, trying to uh, beat him down uh, uh, and refused to carry the, the president's falsehoods on North Korea or Russia. Uh, and I do think these, these profiles and courage are really important to inspiring us uh, to find the ways in our own lives uh, that we can defend our democracy uh, during this time of trial. Uh, so thank you for having me on to, to, to talk about and Thank you for ending on an optimistic note. Victoria <laughs> and I like that. Isakoff, the Prince of Darkness, doesn't. But uh, <laughs> come back again soon. Yeah. Well, all right. Thank you all. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Congressman. Take care. Take care.